Father, we want to thank you so much for this incredible day. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the Lord of the storm. You walk on water. You change water to wine. You calm the seas. And you are Lord of all creation. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you be our teacher today. Open your word to us. And as we read your written word, Father, may we truly encounter the living word, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, give me your words. May I say nothing else and bring encouragement and strength and comfort. Jesus, you are the good and great shepherd, and you know exactly how each and every one of us are doing this morning as we gather here, as we gather online. Bring your healing, powerful touch of love, Father. Pour it to our hearts. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen and amen. You may be seated. I do want to say welcome to the church at Woodbine, those here, those worshiping with us online. We're so glad you've joined us today. Before we dive into the sermon and into this topic, uh, we're going to do something very special this morning. Uh, From time to time, we get the incredible privilege of commissioning people to go into the mission field uh, intentionally for a year, two years, three years, and we'll be doing that here in a couple months. But also from time to time, we uh, have to say goodbye to dearly, dearly loved brothers and sisters. The Lord gives and he takes away. He brings people here for a year, two years, a month, five years, 10 years, and then he calls them to another city, another state. And so today, Tina, I want to ask Tina Gregory to come up. She has been with us for what, about five plus years now. And if anyone knows, Tina knows that she has an incredible heart for Jesus for prayer, for intimacy, for missions. And a handful of months ago, the Lord was closing certain doors, opening doors. She's not technically going on the mission field, but she is moving to Florida. And so <laughs> she needs our prayers. That was a joke. But, but today is her last Sunday here. And I just want to pray over Tina. She has overseen our next steps area for the past several years, awakened the time of prayer and fasting we've done the past few years. She's overseen and been in charge of. And we're going to miss you dearly and miss you greatly. So I want to ask everybody, please stand again. Extend your hands towards me as we bless Tina. If you don't know her, meet her after church. If you do know her, give her a huge hug. The Lord has already opened up a place for her to live and roommates and a very missional church. And she is excited to see what God is already doing as he prepares the way. So we're just going to bless Tina. And I want to say thank you for loving us well and loving Jesus. So let, uh, yeah, let's give a hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Tina. And Lord Jesus, yeah, it's when I think of just the hundreds of people you've given us the privilege to know for a week, for a month, for a year, for five years and beyond. And Father, we thank you so much for Tina, this dear, dear sister, who loves you so much, Jesus, who has a heart for missions, to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, for prayer and for intimacy with you, Jesus. And Father, we put Tina in your hands. She always has been in your hands. We thank you for the doors you've already opened there in Florida. And Father, we pray that you'd fill her with your Holy Spirit in a fresh new way today. As she says goodbye, she packs up as she moves. And Father, that you would open those doors for friendships and relationships with dear sisters and brothers in you, Jesus. And we thank you so much for this church she's already found. And Father, we pray that you would anoint her hands and her feet, her heart and her mind for ministry, for bringing great glory to you, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you and praise you. 
We praise you for this incredible privilege you've given us to worship and serve together these past many years. And we put Tina in your hands today, Jesus. And we ask these things in your precious name. Amen and amen. Thank you. God bless. Amen. Who said y'all could sit? No, I'm teasing. Y'all have a seat. Adam, you're the only one. If we were playing Simon Says, you would have won. All right, today we're going to look at a very simple story. It's Jesus walking on water. And it is the third miracle story that we're seeing in the book of John. It's not the third miracle that John highlights. But we've said this in the past as we're going through this sermon series, as we've looked at Jesus being the word, the living word. And as he he changed water to wine, as he was known as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I want to encourage you again about reading scripture. I know many of you probably started a Bible reading plan at the beginning of the year and have probably already stumbled and fumbled the ball and are out of that plan. Get back on the horse. Remember, we read the written word to encounter the living word. We read his word to encounter Jesus. I've got a fun announcement to share with you about something that God is doing in the Jones family. Christy is not pregnant. We are not expecting a fourth baby. But I got to tell you about our dog named Bo. He is half beagle, half shepherd. He weighs about 70 pounds. He is all beagle. He loves to howl. He loves to dig. He loves to run and hunt. And when we lived up here in the neighborhood, Bo was an evangelist for feral cats. He sent many to heaven. And it got pretty violent and actually was scary at times. Last year, we bought two little kitty cats. And we tried to introduce Bo to these tiny little cats, but he just thought they were Scooby Snacks. And we thought, we need to wait. And to be honest, we actually did pray a little bit because, I mean, Bo would go crazy with any squirrel, rabbit, or cat. And God does miracles. He is the Lord of the storm, and he does signs and wonders because today... There's another picture of Bo with one of our cats. They're buds. This cat right here is actually part bobcat. He's got a stub tail. It's, we call him Fluff. And it's amazing what God can do, even if it's with just animals. He is the Lord of all creation. Right here, John chapter 6. You can turn your smartphone on, open your Bibles. It will be on the screen. Right here in verse 16, it's a very short passage and we'll read it again, but I just want to encourage you guys and remember, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Theologians think it was probably a total of 15,000 because it was 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. He is at the pinnacle of his ministry. If you remember last week, I had to blitz through about 70 verses. And the next day, Jesus confronted the people and their motives for why they are following him. Well, this little story here is before that happened. And what had happened is Jesus fed the 5,000 as we looked at last week. And the people, they saw, man, he can change water to wine and look at all the signs and miracles and wonders. And he fed us. He's got to be king. And they are going to declare him by force and make him become king. And think about it. I mean, what could Rome do with someone leading Israel like that who could do signs and wonders? I mean, he made the Avengers and the Jedi look like nothing. And yet that was not Jesus' mission. And he knew it. 
In the other passages, this is the only story of the feeding of the 5,000. is the only story in all four Gospels except for the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it says in some of the other Gospels that he made his disciples get in the boat. And right here in verse 16, it says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and they started across on the Sea of Capernaum. And other passages, and even right here before this, in verse 15, it says, Jesus went up to the mountain. He escaped the people to pray. And in Mark and Matthew, both, it says from where Jesus was on the mountain, he could see his disciples on the sea as they crossed. Now, it's not really a sea. It's a lake. Sea of Galilee, Sea of Capernaum. It's eight miles wide and 12 miles long. It's not a huge lake. But it is big enough where from time to time, huge storms would come up. And if you've ever been on a lake, when a huge storm arises, it is scary. And at times they say the waves would get up to 10, 15 feet high. And if you're on a little fishing boat, I'm not talking a canoe, but even a boat that's like 20 feet, waves of 10, 15 feet, you're lost. You're dead. So this is what is happening. And we know the story. And so John is going to focus here on this, on this miracle story. When evening came, look at what it says in verse 17. They got into the boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose and the sea began to churn. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on water. He was coming near the boat. And they were afraid. I mean, that statement right there is like, duh. They were afraid. But he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board. And at once, the boat was at the shore where they were heading. Okay, this is a simple story. Jesus is escaping the crowd. And before he does, he gets the disciples on that boat. And they walk in obedience. They obey him. That's important. They get in that boat and they start rowing across. Jesus goes up the mountain to pray. He disperses the people. They leave. And as they're rowing, this huge storm comes up. And it says they're straining at the oars for three or four miles. So they're maybe halfway across. And this huge storm comes up. And they're exhausted. They're afraid. And remember, they're obeying Jesus. They're doing what he told them to do. That is key. What happens? Jesus, in his incredible sovereignty, because he's God in the flesh, starts walking across the water on top of it. Think about it. Here he is. Could you imagine being one of those disciples? You're rowing and you're scared to death because you've seen these storms and you know that you can drown. You know that you can die. And I even wonder if there's some of those disciples, if not all of them, like he made us get in the boat. He told us to get in the boat and look at where he's taken us. You're scared to death. You're exhausted. And then all, and remember, there's not light. But then all of a sudden you see this figure walking on the water. And it says in Mark that he was walking as if he is going to pass by them. And they call out, they're freaking out. They think it's a ghost. And what does he say? It is I. It's a weird way of saying it. 
It is I. Don't be afraid. That phrase, it is I, it is just when Jesus said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, how did he say? I am. It's the same phrase used in Exodus when God called Moses to go back to Egypt and Moses asked, well, Lord, who should I tell him who sent me? And he says, tell them I am who I am has sent you, Yahweh. Every breath we take, we praise his name. Breathe, Yahweh. He is life. And Jesus says, it is I. In other words, literally, he's saying, I am. What's he saying? I am God of the, I'm God in the flesh. Not only has he changed water to wine, but he can now walk on water. Don't be afraid. And what does it say here? When he said that, they were willing to let him get on board. Now, one of the stories, and it's not included here in John, Peter's like, Lord, if it's you, what does he say? Tell me to come out to you. But they're willing and they let him on. And then it says this, and I think this is funny. I'm wondering if it's like one of those fast forwards you see like in the movies sometime, like when there's a panorama and all says like, <laughs> they get him on board and then all of a sudden, whoop, they're on the other side of the sea. Okay, now this is just a simple story, right? Some of my initial thoughts as I was reading through this and thinking about praying over it, this is another amazing story of Jesus' incredible power and greatness. Now, there's many of us that when we look at these miraculous stories, we're like, yeah, God did that. I believe God can do miracles. And it's easy to believe when he did it a long, long time ago in a land far, far away. But I want to challenge all of you to begin to pray and expect that God is still a God of miracles and of wonders and of signs. Because when he does wonders and when he does signs in our midst, it'll make you wonder. Let's not put God in a box. But also, there's another thing. Jesus walked on water. Think about it. What does that mean? He is the Lord of all creation. He can control creation. Sometimes when I want it to snow, I'm like, Lord Jesus, bring the snow. Make that snowstorm come lower. Didn't happen. I guess it wasn't his will. The third point is this, and this is real important. We're going to dive into it more. The disciples were obeying Jesus. And he called them out, commanded them to go into the storm. It reminds me when Jesus was led by the Spirit out to the desert for 40 days to pray and fast and be tempted by the devil. It reminds me when God led Israel into the desert. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, It should be up on the screen. Look at what God, when he's telling the Israelites before they go into the promised land, after those 40 years in the the desert, look at what he says. He says, remember that the Lord your God led you on this entire journey. These how many years? How many? 40. These 40 years in the wilderness so that you might, so that he might humble you and test you, not tempt, but test. And there's a major difference that he might test 
test you to know what is in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Now, I have a question. If there is a being like God who is omniscient, that means he knows all things. When he tests us in order to know what is in our heart, is that for his benefit or for our benefit? When God asks us a question, it's usually pretty rhetorical, is it not? When God walked in the garden after Adam and Eve sinned, and he's like, where are you? Was he needing that information? No. So when God took the Israelites into the desert for those 40 years to test them, to humble them, to show them, to reveal to them what was in their heart, it was for their benefit. This is very important because Jesus commanded the disciples to get in that boat and he knew a storm was coming. And yet he told them to go. The fourth thing is this, as I read through this passage quickly, following Jesus usually means that life gets harder. The love and peace and joy that we have in Holy Spirit, that's all true. And gosh, we're forgiven and we're given new life and the hope that we have, the hope does not disappoint. I'm not making light of that, but unfortunately, too many pastors, too many preachers, too many evangelists, and too many of us, when we tell people, accept Jesus Christ and you'll have love and peace and goodness and kindness and joy in your heart, that is true. But many times we forget to also tell them that there'll be trials and tribulations and tests and there'll be persecution And you'll have an enemy, his name is Satan, who will hate you and he'll want to kill, he'll want to lie, he'll want to destroy you. And many times we forget about that. And many times we forget that when we follow Jesus, he does not put us in this cocoon, in this bubble where all things are good and perfect. Many times he will call us and lead us out to the desert to test us and to press us and to shape us and to mold us. Many times he'll call us out and as we walk in obedience, we'll find ourselves in a storm. And the temptation is to hold our fist up and to shake it at God and say, where are you? And he'll say, I'm right here. The fifth point, as I read this quickly, Jesus was always watching over his disciples from the mountain. We don't see it here in John, but we do see it in the other gospels. He could see them as he was up on that mountaintop praying. He could see his disciples struggling at the oars. And what does he do? He walks out to them. He's always present. He's always watching. Just many times we don't realize it. But you know what? There's so much more to this storm story than meets the eye. We could button it up right here and go, and we can beat the Pentecostals or the Methodists to the buffet. But what I want to do now is I want to dive into the reality of spiritual warfare. And we could talk about that forever. But it's a topic that I think most of us are maybe in kindergarten with. Some of us have experienced it. All of us have experienced it. But most of it, if, I'm, if we're really honest, don't know much about it. And we really don't believe it. Because we're children of the Renaissance, of the Enlightenment. Everything's got to be scientific. It's got to be seen, touched. And if I don't see it, if it's not scientifically proven, we don't believe in it. 
Right here, John chapter 6, there's a phrase here that I've spent a lot of time on this week just praying over. It's in verse 17, John six seventeen. The disciples got into the boat and they started across the Sea of Capernaum or the Sea of Galilee and the Sea of Tiberias. And look at that next phrase. It says, darkness had already set in. John uses the term light and dark, darkness and light all the time throughout the gospel and throughout his three letters of first, second, and third John. Many theologians believe that this is actually a reference to the demonic. Darkness had already set in. And then the storm came. And we're going to look at a handful of passages, so I apologize. It will be on the screen. We're not going to look at every passage. But over in Ephesians, several decades later, the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee and he was persecuting the the church, and Jesus showed up in his life and knocked him down and blinded him for a few days. And Paul gave his life to Jesus and became a radical, powerful apostle. And he wrote a lot of the New Testament. And in Ephesians chapter 6, and if you ever want to read a powerful letter of the New Testament, the book of Ephesians, it's a letter that he wrote to the church of Ephesus. And right here in Ephesians chapter 6, this is what Paul wrote right at the end of this chapter. And it's the spiritual armor chapter. But this is what he says. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Many times because we are um, enlightenment children, we only can see or we only focus on what we can taste, touch, feel, what science can prove, what medicine says. And we don't understand that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our enemy is not people of another religion or another political persuasion, but our enemy is the devil and his demons, his legions. And throughout the New Testament, they're referenced as authorities, rulers, cosmic powers, evil forces here on this planet. A lot of people think and assume that hell is Satan's kingdom and domain. It's not. That hell was created to torment and to punish Satan and his followers forever. Satan does not rule with a pitchfork sitting on some fiery throne in hell. His kingdom is here on earth. You see, at some point in time between the time God created the angels and before Adam and Eve sinned, Satan rebelled in heaven and he was cast out, in quotes. And he came to earth and when he tempted Adam and Eve and they sinned, he stole their authority and dominion that they had, that God had given them as as creations in his image. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, he created them in his image. And he gave them authority over all the earth. And when they sinned, Satan stole that authority. How do I know that? Because when Satan tempts Jesus in the desert, he shows them all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, if you would just bow down to me, I will give you all of these kingdoms because it's been given to me. This is Satan's domain, the earth. He is powerful. And his demons are powerful. And it says here that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual rulers and these authorities. And they are real. They can influence nature. They can influence kingdoms. They can influence nations. And they can influence us. 
Scripture is very clear. The devil, Satan, also known as the dragon or the snake or the serpent, he is a liar from the beginning, and he's the father of lies. If we flip over to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8, this is how Peter describes Satan. He says, be sober-minded, be alert, wake up, wake up. Are you awake? Wake up. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. Say roaring. Roaring lion, looking for anyone. Who? Anyone he can devour. Those, that's a powerful description. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus is saying, it's a few chapters after he walks on water. He says, the the devil has come. He's come only to steal, and he's known as a thief. He's come only to steal, to kill, and destroy. Satan is powerful. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, he holds everyone captive who is afraid of death. So he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is a thief who has only come to lie, to steal, and to kill. Chris, it's the bullet points, not the verses. He also holds the power or he holds everyone captive who is afraid of death. Everyone is born in sin, dead in sin and trespasses. And everyone who is born is a captive to Satan. We're his prisoners. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says he has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Use logic. Everyone who is born is born dead in sin and born an unbeliever. So what does that mean? He's blinded our eyes until we come to know Jesus. That is the devil. He is the prince of darkness, and he is our most principal adversary, And his demons, a third of all the angels he deceived and they followed him, are just like him. He's not some cartoon character with a couple couple horns and a pitchfork and a tail. Many times he will come at us like an angel of light very subtly. He wants to deceive. He wants to steal and he wants to kill you and me. Darkness settled in that night as those men were on that boat. But then there's Jesus. As Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, lie, destroy. Jesus says, but I've come to give you life and to give it abundantly. In Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, and Chris, you can put that verse up. This is one of my best, most favorite verses. And this whole passage in Hebrews 2 is one of the passages that the Lord used 25 years ago to begin the process of healing of all my sexual abuse as a little child. Because it says that he shared since the children, that's me and you, since we have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. See, Jesus became a man. He's God in the flesh. He's God. He's the Son of God. He's the eternal Son of God. He always has been. He always will be. And before the creation of the world, when the Father birthed in his own heart, I want to create this amazing universe, and we're going to create all types of amazing creatures, and we're going to create these humans in our image. Before he could finish, Jesus says, I'll go. I'll die for them. I'll shed my blood for them. 
And it's all for your glory, Father. And the Father knew that. And in order for us to be free from our sin and forgiven and given life, a new life, one had to come as a human, but perfect in every way in order to crush Satan. And so what does this verse say? It says he shared in our humanity, in our flesh and blood, so that through his death, he might do what? Destroy the one holding the power of death. And that is the devil. The devil is still alive. But he is like a ferocious dog who's chained to a leash. He is like the Nazi army that knew that they were vanquished once the allies had invaded France and Normandy. There would still be battles to come, but he's been stripped of his power. Jesus has destroyed Satan. He's crushed his head as it was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. Because right after Adam and Eve sinned, when God comes down and he lovingly confronts them, and Eve says, and he confronts Adam first, what did you do? Oh, this lady you gave me. Always shifting the blame we are. And what did Eve do? No, no, the serpent, he deceived me. (coughs) We're always shifting the blame. And that's when God prophesies the first prophecy of Jesus. He says, there'll be enmity between you and her offspring. And you will bite, in the Spanish it's called the talon. It's the heel, you'll bite his heel, but he will crush your head. Jesus, when he came, he didn't come around to fool around. And yes, he is a God of incredible joy, but he came on a mission to not only die on the cross for our sins and reconcile us to our glorious father, but he came to destroy Satan and his power and his work. And he crushed him. And he took back what Satan has stole from Adam and Eve. He took back those keys of death. And now it says that Jesus sitting on the throne, he has the keys to life and to death. He has that power. He controls it all. And in his sovereignty, the Lord does let Satan do his thing still. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And we can see it all throughout Scripture. But Jesus gives life and he gives it abundantly. He came to destroy the one who had power over death. In Colossians 2.15, it's very similar. But it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he disgraced them. He made a public spectacle. On it when he died and when he rose again. And then in John 6.20, it's right here, when the disciples are so struggling at the oars and darkness had set in, they freak out when they see Jesus walking on water. And how does Jesus respond? He says, it is I. He says, I am. I'm Yahweh right here with you. So in closing, What does this have to do with us? I shared with you an incredible transformation of my dog. And I was being silly. I mean, he and the cats do get along. But Jesus is not only Lord of the storm and of dogs and cats, he's Lord of the universe. He holds the the keys of life and death. He is the judge. He is Lord. He is Savior. He is the maker. He is the great I am. He reveals the Father and he gives us Holy Spirit. His Spirit lives in us. How do we respond? Well, the first thing, and there's a whole lot of verses, but there's three things. The first one is we need to walk in humble obedience, just like those apostles. If Jesus tells us to get in the boat, yes, sir. 
And there's a text, you can go look at it. James talks about, he says, draw, he says, he talks about humbling ourselves and resisting the evil one. And when we draw ourselves near to the Lord and we resist Satan, he must flee. And he commands us to wash your hands, confess your sins. But we need to walk in humble, loving obedience to the Father each and every day. If the Lord is speaking to you about something and you're delaying that that obedience, that's just disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. The second, we need to be alert. As Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert, wake up. There's an enemy, the devil. He's like a roaring lion. We need to be very aware of what is the devil doing in our midst. How does he want to destroy you, to destroy your kids, to destroy your parents? How does he want to destroy our society? And we don't come against flesh and blood with the spiritual armor that the Lord gives us. The third thing is worship. And I want to invite everybody to stand. In Psalm 22, I say this, it's verse 3. You might be wondering, man, that's the psalm that Jesus used when he's on the cross. And it is. It's an incredible psalm. It's a psalm of worship. And in verse 3, Psalm 22, 3, it says, God, the God of Israel, inhabits the praises of Israel. So when we worship, God inhabits our worship in a very unique, powerful way. So I want to ask the worship team to come forward. And Matt, I totally forgot to tell you this. I apologize. Do you mind just underscoring? We're going to take a few moments just in prayer. And I want to encourage everybody, just as a symbol of receiving, just to raise your arms like this. The early church would do it a lot. It kind of reflects like just the spirit of receiving. And I want to invite you right now, just begin to pray out loud. It might feel awkward. Your neighbors are beside you. Begin to thank the Lord. Don't ask him for anything. Don't confess anything. Just begin to thank him for anything and everything that comes to mind. It could be as simple as my dog, Bo, and my cats for the breakfast we ate with the sunshine. Just begin to pray out loud because he inhabits our praises. Again, don't ask for a thing. If you're worshiping with us online, stand up if you can and just begin to thank him, praise him. Now I want to invite you, if there's any burdens or any fears you have, lay it at Jesus' feet. You might be in a storm right now, scared to death of what is happening all around you. What is happening at work or to your family, maybe your future, maybe your past is continually haunting you. Lay that at Jesus' feet. Let him be the great I am in your life. If he can walk on physical water, if he can calm that storm, he can definitely walk with you in whatever storm you find yourself in now. He is ever present. And he tells us, do not be afraid.
Father, we thank you and praise you. We love you. And as we worship and sing about you, Jesus, continue to reveal yourself to us. Amen.